When the Lord described himself to Moses in one of the most significant self-revelations of the Bible, in Exodus, this is how God described himself. It says, The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord proclaimed these words about himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. That's how God reveals himself. And then the, probably the most well-known verse in, in all the Bible describes God as a giver. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. At the core of who God is, he forgives sin, and he's benevolent. But the act of giving is one of the things that, that I mocked the most before I came to Christ. I watched the same uh, money merchants that you have seen on TV fleecing the poor and duping the ignorant, and I mocked them and anyone stupid enough to, to give to them. Of course, I had no problem using my own manipulative ways in business. I mean, that was different, right? I could close a business deal and shade the truth or, or cheat a person that I sold something to and have no problem with it at all. But I could very easily point out the, the issues and rightfully point out the issues with the faith healers. But when I came to Christ, I repented of both. I became an honest man and a man who delighted in, in giving. I can still remember very vividly uh, the Monday morning after a lesson in Sunday school class about giving to, to the Lord. I can remember it clear as day. It's one of, those, one of those memories that I can just still see myself sitting there in my pickup truck in the driveway before I went off to work, and, and I would start the truck and I would pray. It was early, first few months, first year of, of being, a, being a believer. And I can remember there telling the Lord I would, I would give him $20 next Sunday and every Sunday after that. I'm sure God wasn't impressed with my $20 because I made thousands, but he was pleased with my submissive and transforming heart. I wanted to give because he gave to me. I wanted to do it freely. And that, that pleased the Lord. Of course, since then, I've grown to understand much more, even what Paul is going to teach us today. Giving is not about false teachers. They'll always be here. And they'll be here until God consumes them in His righteous wrath. But giving is about God. He allows you to imitate Him. And in doing so, we become part of His work of granting forgiveness to any who will, who will ask. It's a participation with Christ as he builds his church. And it has very sound theology behind it, which is what Paul outlines for us today in these, in these five verses. We started uh, Paul's final portion of his letter last week, which, which covers one of the main reasons he wrote it. The, the Philippian letter is partially a thank you note for the resources sent to the by the Philippians to the hands of uh, Epaphroditus. And verses 10 through 20 is the gratitude portion of that, of that letter that Paul saves for the end. And, and in these 11 verses of, of thankful praise, he shares with us the secret to contentment, which is what we saw last time in verses 14 through 20. Contentment is learned through circumstance and 
uh, verses 10, 10 and 12, Paul had suffered need and he had operated with, with plenty. And through those circumstances, he, he learned how to trust God and rest in his sovereign providence. And he also learned that contentment comes through, through Christ's capability. In those situations when he'd reached the limits of human ability, God infused him with divine power so Paul could boldly claim, I can, I can go through anything, I can do all things, through, through Christ who gives me strength. And then right after that, Paul follows up with a theology of Christian giving in verses 15 through, through 20, which is what we're going to look at today. And frankly, I can't think of two better topics with Thanksgiving sandwiched in between, right? I mean, being content with what we have as we approach Thanksgiving and then the reason that we give as believers uh, the Sunday after. While Paul is thanking the Philippian church for their gift, he teaches them and us the theology of Christian giving. The Philippians had a pattern of giving. That, that pattern was a partnership with Paul in the gospel, and their giving was a pleasing and priestly offering to God himself, and the offering brought God's provision for their every need. My, my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And when it all came together, it brings praise to, to God alone. Now to our God and Father be, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Or as we will call it, the, the four parts of the theology of giving. There's the participation of giving in verses 15 through 16, the, the produce from giving in verses 17 and 18, and the provision through giving in verse 19, and then the praise in giving in verse, verse 20. Let's look at the, the first one, the participation of, of giving. Verses 15 and 16, Paul talks about their pattern, their, their partnership with him, and then the privilege that he gave to the, to the Philippians uh, alone. Now, I'm sure you've probably sat through plenty of stewardship campaigns or arm twisting or otherwise, and I can, I can assure you that what Paul will teach you in Philippians this morning is, is none of that. In fact, it's the, it's the underpinning, it's the, it's the very basis, it's the theology behind why you give as a, as a believer. It's not a lesson for unbelievers. God doesn't want your money if you're an unbeliever. He wants you to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. But as a believer, God transforms our hearts and gives us the privilege to participate in, in his work. And so Paul starts in verse 14. He says, even though I'm content and Christ is strengthening me, what, what you Philippians did in sending the gift was a good thing. Look at, verse, look at verse 14. He says, nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Now notice the first word that Paul starts with there. It's, it's nevertheless, which is how he transitions to, to, to a, a, his second topic. He starts with this ad, adverbial conjunction to indicate something more is coming, and he does that so the Philippians don't misunderstand what he just got done saying. The church had just given sacrificially and sent Epaphroditus miles and miles to deliver a tremendous gift, and Paul starts his thank you in verse 10. He waits to the end of the letter, and when he finally gets to the gratitude portion, he starts in verse 10 by saying, I didn't seek your gift, and I know how to be content with or without it, and because all of my needs, Christ strengthens me in. I mean, MacArthur said it would be very easy, up through verse 14, for the Philippians to read that and think, well, then why did we send it to begin with, right? I mean... I mean, if you send a sacrificial gift beyond your normal giving to the treasurer of the church and, 
and the treasurer sent you a note back that said, I'm in receipt of your generous gift, but I can't say we needed it because God has met all, met all of our needs. And if you hadn't sent it, God would strengthen us to make it without it. You, you would probably be thinking the same thing. Probably thinking, well, why did I give it? They had made this massive sacrifice in, in sending man, a man and money, and Paul says, I know how to be content with or without it. And so he doesn't want them to get the wrong idea. So he goes beyond that with a theological thank you note. You see, in verses 10 through 14, or verses 10 through 13, Paul's talking about his own circumstances, how he views his hardship, how he views receiving the gift and being without the gift. But in verses 15 and 20, it's about their circumstances and how they should view their giving and how you should view your giving as well. So the first part is how you should view receiving. God will supply with you. You don't seek that. You don't seek receiving. God will supply it one way or the other. Verses 15 through 20 is how you should view giving. He says, while God will take care of, of me, it's a good thing that you sent it. And here's why. Look, if you would, at verse 15. He says, you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, when I had left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but, but you alone. And he starts by, by rehearsing their pattern in, in giving. He names a number of places and a number of occasions when, whenever they'd given. And he said it wasn't the first time that they sent him a gift, or even the second. There was a pattern of giving. Of giving. And Paul says, you Philippians know this. Notice that he calls them by name. Now, anytime somebody addresses you by your, by your full name or your proper name, it's important, right? I mean, when your mother says, William Brian Farrell, that means you better pay attention to what's coming next. Well, Paul does this three times in, in his epistles for the same reason. You probably remember the one in Galatians chapter 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And he, Paul does that to express his bafflement at the church waffling on the, on the gospel of grace so, so soon. He calls the Corinthians by name in 2 Corinthians 6.11 to exhort them. And here, he names the Philippians. And it's to express his affectionate gratitude for, for, for their support. And he says it went all the way back to the beginning. I mean, they know. They know this about giving. From the very beginning of their faith, at the first preaching of the gospel, the, the first time the gospel came to them, they supported God's work. There was no delay. That's what that means, the first preaching of the gospel. The minute that they came to faith in Christ, they immediately started giving. Can you say that? I can't. You heard how I started was months after when I was sitting in the, in, the, in the parking lot. For my very first time I believed the gospel, I started giving generously. That's what Paul asked, can you say? Maybe like Zacchaeus. You remember Zacchaeus? Maybe you gave because it was to return what you'd already fleeced from other people. You, you had made restitution in some way. Whatever the reason, the act of giving should not be delayed. I mean, good intentions never got anyone into the kingdom. You, you must choose this day whom you'll serve. And, and knowing you should give and then never doing anything about it didn't, didn't build the kingdom. As God has been a giver to you, so you should give to him. And, and it was a pattern that continued on in the, the rest of their Christian lives. Look at you at verse 16. 
It says, For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Now Paul's actually tracing his missionary journey here by naming how they they gave. The Philippians followed the apostle Paul around in, in in his church planting. Their giving came at Paul's very first stop after after leaving Philippi, which was Thessalonica. And verse 15 says they they helped him again before he left Macedonia for for Corinth and Athens. And notice the emphasis here is even once he was was immediately gone from from Philippi. That's the idea. I mean, the very first place I stopped after I left, you sent me gifts. And they did it over and over again. They did it immediately, and they did it over and over again. If you start a pattern of giving then you're likely to continue later in your Christian life. If, if you delay and you're stingy, it's, that's likely to continue too. And the emphasis here is their, their extraordinary promptness and their persistent pattern because it was so soon after Paul left. I mean, this means, verse 16, even in Thessalonica, it meant the believers from Philippi had to travel down the Ignatian Way 95 miles to uh, to to Thessalonica, to assist in Paul's needs. I mean, it would be like me going to, to, to plant a church from, from Timberlake, um, just north of Greensboro, North Carolina, and you walking an offering uh, to that church to, to support the work more than once. Well, that would be a cakewalk north of Greensboro than, than getting to Corinth, 275 miles away, or Rome, with Epaphroditus some 800 miles away that took months and months to give there. Do you get the idea? That's what the Philippians did. They supported Paul continuously. And giving like that should be a pattern in your life as well. Listen, it's one thing to give to projects and uh, and a one-time gift. And I hope you do that. I mean, Jeff just rolled out wonderfully a Christmas offering. And I've already given to that. So has my family. There's a great projects to, to give to. There are plenty of great projects to give to. But that's not Christian giving. It's not the basic theology behind Christian giving, giving to projects. It's another thing altogether to give regularly as a partner where the work done can count on your repetition. That's what Paul's saying. Theologically informed giving is patterned. It's, it's not delayed and it's regularly uh, regular. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, the the normal pattern is, is every Sunday. That's how the, the pattern should, should carry out. This is now concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are to do as well. On the first day of the week, that's Sunday, each of you put aside uh, and save as he may prosper, so no collections need to be made whenever I come. Now, notice it's the same instruction that he gave other churches. This is not just a Corinth. And notice it's as you prosper. So as you get paid, you, you share out of that. And you do that regularly. So things don't back up. That's what Paul's saying. And that's what it looks like to, to be in partnership with, with God's work. There's the pattern. They did it immediately and they continued to do it. And they were in partnership with, with Paul. Look at what he says in verse 15 again. Theology of giving. You yourselves know, Philippians that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. Giving is not only patterned, 
It's also a partnership where you share in the work. The, the word share, verse 14, and the word share here in verse 15 is, is where Potten Church gets its name, koinonia. The root word of share is, is koinonia, a fellowship or a partnership. And Paul uses contractual business language here. The phrase in the matter of giving and receiving were accounting terms like debits and credits. And Paul's point with the Philippians were partners, not only with him, but his work. They invested in it. And you're just one person in, in the church. But it's Christian giving that makes you a part of its whole work. And you get debits and credits laid to your accounting in heaven by, by being part of it in that way. That's the language that Paul uses here. Partnership language. And when you give, you're no longer a spectator, but you're a partner. You're like an investor. I mean, you might think of it this way. Maybe there's a company that, that, that you think is, is really well run or you're interested in, like, like Tesla or something like that. And maybe you watch it. Maybe you even have the stock ticker on your, on your little Apple phone there, and, and you watch it, and, and it goes up and up and up. It's one thing to watch it. It's another thing to buy stock in it. And Paul says giving is like owning shares in God's work. You don't just watch the work. You own part of it. You're, you're a partner in that, in that work. And that's a tremendous privilege afforded primarily to mature believers. Notice it says that no other church had this privilege except the Philippians alone. Verse 15 again. It says, after I left Macedonia... No church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. He says they were the only ones. And that's the privilege that they had. It's an evidence of their favor. Paul accepted support from the Philippians while present with them in the household of Lydia. He took it from them. But when he went to Thessalonica and Corinth, he didn't take any support from those churches. That's what he says here. You alone had the privilege of supporting the work there. Why? He deliberately worked with his own hands to set a model for the church in Thessalonica so nothing would get attached to the gospel. Look at what it says in 2 Thessalonians 3. This is a brand new work. Paul didn't charge them. He didn't take any money from them when he, when he got there. He says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Because when... We did not act in an undisciplined way among you, nor, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept on working night and day so that we would not be a burden to, to any of you. Not because we did not have the, the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a role model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. I mean, Thessalonica was a, was a much bigger province with more influential city in Macedonia, but they didn't join in, Paul's, in partnership with Paul in giving. Only the Philippians did. And then when he went to Corinth, he took nothing from Corinth as well, and, and Corinth was a, was a massive city. Look at what he says in 2 Corinthians 11, 7 through 9. He says, or did I commit sin by humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? 
I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brothers came from Macedonia, and that's the Philippians, they fully supplied my need, and in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. It was the Philippians who gave the money to Paul to serve in both of those churches. And then Paul even says back in 1 Corinthians 4, I know I'm belaboring this, there's a point. He says, we worked with our hands, meaning he led the whole missionary group in outside work so that, so that he would not charge a new area of gospel work. We labored with our own hands. He worked with his own hands. He led the team to work with their own hands. He took no salary, even though he had the right to do that. But the Philippians were his partners in the free ministry in Thessalonica and Corinth was part of the gospel's work. So Paul could say with absolute clarity in both of those places that his motives were totally free of all interests other than the gospel. And he didn't want to hinder the gospel in any way by being associated with false teachers and those who sold teaching for money. And that tells you a lot about the relationship that he had with the Philippians. Paul was free to take their money because they knew his motives. And he knew theirs. No wonder Paul speaks about the Philippians with such closeness and thanksgiving. That's the way the Christian giving is. Theology behind Christian giving. It's a privilege that God grants to the pure in heart. To those who truly desire to participate. To those who are are not weak in the faith. They may stumble over that. Listen, if you don't want to give or you do it grudgingly, don't. I, I really mean that. I mean... You're like the Corinthians, weak in faith, easily, easy to stumble. I mean, if God has to bribe you by telling you that, that he'll grow your seed seven times what you gave, keep your money. I mean, that's not Christian giving. Participation in the gospel work is a privileged right reserved to a cheerful giver. And Paul's need didn't matter, but their participation in the gospel does because their gift served as evidence of fruitfulness that will gain interest in heaven. There's a second part in the theology of Christian giving is in verses 17 and 18. And Paul says it increases eternal fruit and it acts as incense in priestly service. Look at you at verse 17. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to, to your account. Now Paul was truly excited about their gift. Not because of his own benefit, but theirs. He makes that abundantly clear. When I happen to glance at the weekly offerings, which I don't do often, they're sent around in an email to the, all the finance people, and I get copied on it like the other pastors. If I, if I happen to, to look at it, I think two things. God is faithful to provide for his work, and God's people who gave will be blessed. The two things that I typically think. Paul says in verse 11, not that I'm in need, he qualifies what what he's saying. Not that I'm in need, thankful for your gift, but not that I was in need. God sustains me no matter what, talking about his circumstances. And now he qualifies his thanks again, saying not that I seek the gift, I seek the spiritual fruit in your life. The word for fruit is karpos, it's another financial term. It means advantage or gain, like a dividend. 
it's like those financial advisor commercials where, where the broker is smiling, standing there with the person that, that he's, he's advising, and then the narrator starts talking about his fees, and he begins to get very, very uncomfortable. Paul's saying he has the lowest admin rates in the business. He desires, his only goal in receiving anything is to increase profits and accumulate dividends for the Philippians' accounts, spiritual ones. Literally, an ever-increasing balance in their divine account. Moises Silva um, paraphrased it this way. This is how he puts uh, uh, um, verse, verse 17. If I commend you so much, it's not because I'm interested in receiving more gifts. What I'm interested in is the proceeds that will accrue to your account. That's the idea of what, Paul's means here, what Paul means here. I mean, the false teaching uh, idea of sowing money seeds is not even faith. It's, it's sinful presumption. I mean, seed sowing, as the prosperity teachers falsely claim, is all about you. It's not about the gospel. It's about earth and not, not eternity. I mean, you sow in presumption, and God will give you more money in, in return, and that's not biblical giving at all. Biblical giving is not about what God will do for you here and now. It's about the spiritual fruit from faithful participation in, in His Word. And when you do participate in the work of God, then you gain a portfolio where it matters. Another passage you probably know well, Paul. notice where Paul points, how he ends this whole, whole thing about sowing and reaping. He says, now I say this, the one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the one who sows generously will also reap generously. Each one must do just as he decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace overflow to you so that always hearing always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have abundance in every good deed, just as it is written. And then he quotes Psalm 112, verse 9. He scattered abroad, he gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. It doesn't say anything about money. It talks about righteousness. It doesn't say anything about earth. It talks about eternity or forever. He's scattering here. But that righteousness endures forever. And their giving is also a form of worship. It increases eternal fruit, and it is a form of worship. Look at verse 18. He says, But I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you sent. When was the last time that you heard a faith healer say that? I am amply supplied. I need nothing else. Don't send any of your gifts in today. And yet that's what Paul says here. But look what he says about giving. What you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Paul's giving an example of what he says he just learned. He says he knows how to be abased and how to abound, and, and he's in prison. He, he, he's clearly in need there. And he knows also how to be overflowing, which is what he's talking about here. I received their overflowing gift, which made him beyond full. He says, I am fully supplied, amply supplied. But notice Paul immediately changes metaphors. In verse 18, it's a sacrificial offering. In verses 14 through 17, it's a commercial venture of giving and receiving. And now he starts talking about sacrifice. 
And Paul says their, their gifts were three things. It was a fragrant odor to God, like incense. And they're acceptable sacrifices to God. And they're pleasing to Him. Philippians not only had provided more than enough for Paul, they presented a sacrifice that's pleasing to God. And what's even more amazing is when you see this whole, this whole imagery of sacrifice uh, develop, how Paul develops it through, through the entire letter. Do you remember uh, back in chapter 2 when, when Paul used himself and Timothy and Epaphroditus as models to follow? Paul says his goal in life was to be, was to be a secondary offering, was to be a drink offering poured over the burnt offering of the, of the Philippians' faith. I mean, they would bring the chunk of meat, their, their faith, and then Paul would be the oil and the wine that was poured over that, would, that would then flame it up. He says, my whole goal in life is to, is to flame up your offering, is to, is to be used to enhance your faith. You live to, to enhance other people's sacrifice to the Lord. But here he starts using that sacrificial language again. And here he says it's their gift that made his sacrifice possible. And when he got to Epaphroditus in chapter 2, he, he told the Philippians to receive him because he almost died in his service on your behalf. Listen to Philippians 2.29. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold people like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to compensate for your absence in your service to him. And the word for service is the word for priestly service. And Epaphroditus is the one who brought the gift to Paul. You see what Paul's doing? Paul is saying Epaphroditus served as a, as a priest who served them. And they gave the gift to the priest, Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus, as a servant, brought it to the apostle Paul. And that monetary offering was, was, was mingled together with Paul's offering of being in affliction, in prison for the gospel. And when those two things were, were mingled together, they were offered as a sacrifice to God on behalf of others, which the Lord accepted. And all three are part of the sacrificial work, and it's a, it's a sweet incense before the Lord. And the Lord's response will be overflowing blessings and meeting their, their needs. You ever come home from work hungry, you haven't been able to eat breakfast or, or lunch, and you go out on the back, back patio you're waiting on dinner and your next door neighbor is is barbecue and hamburgers next door on the grill you begin to smell it and you're thinking man when is dinner going to to be ready do you know that's what the temple smelled like with the burnt offering god says it's the same way every time that you give to the gospel work it's like a burnt offering that's consumed on on the altar of god's work and and god is pleased and when you're, you're meeting, when you're, when you're giving meats with God's servant's sacrifice, then it rises like sacrificial smoke before his throne, and he takes note and he, he's pleased. It, it, is that how you think whenever you, you click on your phone every week or put something in, in the offering plate? It should be. That's why I emphasize that it's, it's for our church members. When you place your gift there, you ignite a sacrificial fire and smoke rises to the, to the Lord's very throne every time that you do that, and he smiles. 
And just as the Philippians met Paul's need, God will, will be the one who meets your needs as well. I'll give you the, the third part in the theology of Christian giving is the provision from giving. Look if you would at verse, verse 19. And, notice it, it continues, what he just got done saying. What you sent is a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, and God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in, in Christ Jesus. Giving is active participation in the gospel's work. Giving bears spiritual fruit in verse 17. Giving is, is a sacrificial offering to God, verse 18. And giving reciprocates a supply to, to every need. And they're the ones better for it. This verse talks about God's promised supply and Christ's endless riches. Paul promises God will respond in covering, quote, every need of yours, which clearly includes material needs. Silva's paraphrase, I think, is helpful again. This is how he would, would put this verse. Who can doubt then that my God will fully take care of all your needs, not nearly according to what you consider necessary, but according to his riches in glory, which becomes ours in union with, with Christ Jesus. Paul uses profit and partnership language, and, and he says they'll be rewarded far more than, than, than they gave. Now, how can Paul say that? I mean, how can Paul say? He's in prison. He has nothing. As, as one commentator said, there's the clanking of chains that, when you're around Paul, not, the, you know, not, not the, the jingling of coins in his pocket. I mean, Paul has nothing. They've just given him everything that he has. He's in prison. He has nothing to give. So how can Paul make this bold claim? He says this because they're not only in partnership with him, but Christ. And so the payback will come from God in two ways. In heaven, through increased worship, and now in, in the needs that, that you have on earth. What, what will be of value whenever you, you get to heaven? Land, property, gold, money, physical health, smarts? Now, there's only one currency in heaven that has any value. It's the currency of worship. It's the only thing in heaven. It's the only thing heaven runs on is worship. Jesus Christ on his throne at the center of heaven. And the only thing of any value in heaven is worship given to the Lamb who was slain. And for all eternity, you and I will, will bow before Jesus and worship Christ by casting our crowns at his feet as the Bible calls them. And the only opportunity you have to gain that currency is here on earth. I mean, you understand that your life here and now is not about here and now, right? It's about treasure in heaven that's laid up from every good work that, that you do, and whatever you have at the end of your time is all you've got. It's all of the, the currency that, that you have. And people run around to stuff their pockets here only to go into the grave and have nothing there. And they don't lay up anything there. And the amazing thing is, is, whatever you give here, God says you will never lack in what you need. 
That's what verse 19 says, all your needs, which surely means physical needs, but God will supply other needs as well, since it says every. And we've already heard how God supplies some of those needs. Joy, stability, um, peace that passes all understanding. Paul in verse 12 says, this is a literal translation, I have been filled to the full by your gift. And now in verse 19 he says, God will fill you to the full because of your gift. And the well that he will draw from is bottomless. It's Christ's endless supply. God's promised supply and Christ's endless riches. Look at verse 19. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It's in keeping with, with his riches, which is endless supply and, and rightful domain. There's nothing that he lacks. And there's nothing that, that lives outside of his rightful ownership. If you want to summarize verse 19, I think you could summarize it this way. God will not be in your debt whenever you give. You have given sacrificially, and that's pleasing to the Lord, but God is the debtor to, to, to no man. And unlike all of the other gods that seek, gods with a little g that seek your gifts and, and you to serve them, God says he needs nothing from you. And he'll be the debtor to no man. Not because he has to or, or even should, but because he's overflowing with generous grace. Do you see the difference between the faith healers and the other false religions and true faith? All the other religions of the world give you a map to get to God by what you do and what you sacrifice and what you give. But the God of the Bible says there's nothing that you have that I need. Nothing. And there's nothing that you could give me. What is there that I haven't made or don't own anyway? So I give to you. I give to you my son. And I give to you my spirit. And that doesn't stop at salvation. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? We have nothing that didn't come from the Lord to begin with, and yet he invites us to give what is already his, and then turns around and meets all of our needs and gives us more than all the other gods take. The God of heaven gives. And so will you. If you're like him, not out of his riches, but according to his riches, meaning equal to his riches. It's the same thing that, that James chapter 1 says. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask the giving God who upbraideth not. He doesn't withhold. He doesn't hold anything back. God's not cheap. He's an abundant giver. He supplies all your needs out of this abundance. John MacArthur said, A Christian who gives to God will never be poorer after he gives. And the whole thank you ends with a final outburst of praise in verse 20. Here's the praise in giving. Do it at verse 20. It says, Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. The Philippians had a pattern of giving. That pattern was a partnership. That partnership was a priestly offering. That priestly offering brought God's provision and all that together brings praise. 
I mean, give because it's part of an ongoing partnership with the Lord and other workers. Give because it's a privilege that you have as mature workers. It's an evidence that you're not a weak believer. Give because of spiritual fruit in your own life. Give because it's sweet worship to God. Give because God will supply all your needs. And give for the praise of the Lord. Gordon Fee said Paul begins his letter in Christ Jesus, and now he concludes in Christ Jesus, and in between, Paul says, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Every need of yours, every breath is found in Christ Jesus. And so with nothing more to say, Paul simply bursts into doxology. These truths about God lead him to praise God. I mean, true theology brings doxology. If you want to fly high for the Lord, you want to be filled with emotion, you want to be filled with joy, dive deep in knowing God, doctrine, and theology. That's who he is. That's the wood that burns uh, flash fires of emotion are just that. They come and they go. You want to build, you want to build a fire in your theological gullet, then, then you know who God is, and it will burn, and it will sustain you, even through difficult times. And doxology is always the proper response to God. Let me think about your own experience. When you marvel at the riches of God, that he's lavished on us in Christ Jesus, what else is there to do but praise and worship? And one of the primary ways that you worship is by giving in partnership in this way. May your lack of giving always be because you lacked opportunity, never because you neglected opportunity. Because if you're not in partnership with the gospel work in, in this way, you're missing out. If it's not regular and consistent, and you're not receiving these benefits, and that's the theology of Christian giving, you should bow your heads. If you're here this morning and you have never come to Christ, you need to receive so you can give. You need to receive first. The gospel says there is nothing that you have to offer God. There's nothing that you could offer God to to make yourself worthy. And so God gave to you. He gave to his son. It says that Jesus willingly laid down his life. No man took it. He freely gave it. Why did he give it? Where did he give it? He gave it on a cross. He lived the life that you failed to live. He was righteous even though you and I are unrighteous. He was without sin even though you and I are sinners. And he gave his life a ransom. On the cross, he gave, stood in your place and absorbed God's wrath, and then rose from the dead and freely offers to all who will believe the free gift of eternal life. So the first thing you need to do is to receive that. But if you're a believer and you've already received that, let me ask you, are you mature enough to participate in this kind of giving? Or are you like the Corinthians and need someone else to to get the privilege so you can be ministered to? Maybe right now or in the driveway before you go to work, you too would bow and commit to the Lord something that You're withholding from him. 
maybe you're just encouraged that dividends are accruing in heaven because you do all of those things. I know we have a good and mature church, and I praise God for that. I also praise God for the privilege to be part of it through my giving. Lord, we come before you and we thank you for such clear truth, so contrary to what we see on TV and in the world, so twisted, and even the sometimes in our mind, Father, the way we, we view these kinds of things. And yet your word always has the answer. There's always a theological underpinning. There's always a reason behind what we do. And you don't fail to show us that. Thank you for the privilege of receiving the gift that you have given and turning around and giving back our lives in service to you and all that we have. We want to be a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable to you. And if we'll give that, nothing else will be withheld. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.